Welcome to Automators, a show all about automating your Mac, your iPad, and everything else you own. I'm David Sparks, and joined by my co-host, Rosemary Orchard. How are you doing, Rose? I'm great, David. How are you today? Excellent. And we're really happy to have a guest with us today. Uh, welcome to the show, John Syracusa. I'm happy to be here. I'm ready to automate some stuff as soon as you guys tell me how. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's, you know, that's the funny thing, because John is a programmer by trade. John, I guess you largely do web programming, right? Yep, that's what I've always done. And your, what's your primary programming language you work in? For years and years, uh, it, I was Perl was my main language for the server side. And then, of course, client side, it's all the typical web technologies um, and languages. But these days, I've been branching out a little bit more. Uh, I think the main thing that we've been working with server side is JavaScript, actually, which is the same as JavaScript on the front end, but not really, because on the server side, you get to use newer versions of the language with all sorts of neat features. So... I've been doing uh, Node.js on the server side for a while now, but there's still Perl there lurking in the mix and whatever other things I have to do. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the listeners of our show are, you know, they're not, they don't pay for their shoes programming computers, but it's a lot of folks that want to get uh, their computers to do things automatically for them. And there's a growing flock of the people listening to the show that are are spending their time learning JavaScript because, you know, it is becoming a tool of automation. Yeah, which it kind of pains me because it's not the best language, but because it was the language for uh, making web browsers do things, it became immensely popular because it was built into web browsers and it's just the snowball effect. And now there's always been a desire to, ha to not have two different languages on the server side and the client side. So it's through a series of improbable, ridiculous events, this language, JavaScript, which is getting better, but it's still very strange and awkward and not great. Uh, quote unquote wins because it has to be everywhere. And so, you know, we are all, everyone's either learning it or forced to learn it or kind of wants to learn it because you can run it everywhere and make it do all sorts of things. And for automation, it's real nice because JavaScript based automation, as it's being uh, created by like the Omni groups, uh, I think they called it Omni Java. Is that what they call it, Rose? I don't I, remember. I think they're just calling it Omni Automation and they're using JavaScript for it. Yeah. yeah. But, but the advantage is if you write that script, it's going to work on iOS devices and the Mac. And, you know, like, whereas if you spend the time learn Apple script, it's only one platform. Yeah, that's that's another accident of history. Like, so Apple didn't want to allow uh, programming languages basically to to run on, you know, your, on the phone or on iOS or on anything. Like, they didn't want to give you basically like an IDE where you can write your own software because they didn't want to create like a second tier app store or various other reasons why they wouldn't want you to be able to sell a program lots of the people write programs that then run on your phone like and you know you could use it as a side loading mechanism to anyway um but they did let you run javascript because you have to be able to use safari and safari runs javascript and you could put a web view into your application which could then run javascript so javascript has always been like kind of the back door into programmability on ios uh, and you know i think we've moved on from that now where it's more officially supported along with other languages but it's another weird accident of history and uh you know corporate policy that, yeah, we're using JavaScript to automate everything because it's the same everywhere and it's because it's the thing that works on the phone and the iPad. So we should have asked Sal uh, Segoyan about this, but I don't even, is it possible? Because I don't think iOS supports Apple events at this point. Are we past the point that Apple event support could be added? I don't know. You're never past the point, but I'm, I'm going to say I don't see that happening. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think of JavaScript as a programming language for automation? 
I mean, the advantages it has is that it's fairly high level. So you're not dealing with like pointers or memory management or anything like that. Um, and it is also familiar to a lot of people because they've seen it in their web browsers uh, for so many years. Uh, and there's, you know, Node.js on the server and there's various versions of JavaScript in, in, in web browsers. And so if you're asked to automate something with some language and you had to guess what language is reasonably well suited to this task that people might know, JavaScript is the answer, right? So it's it could be much worse. Let's put it that way. Um, trying to automate things with C would really close the door on a lot of people. JavaScript, you can more or less pick up uh, if you've, you've done any programming in any language, and it's very friendly. Like, it won't, whatever you write will do something. It won't crash your program. It may not do what you expect, but it's pretty user-friendly. So if you were picking the perfect automation language, what would you, you know, say that somebody put you in charge of the universe for a day, and so you picked a language that was going to be the cross-platform automation language, ideally Windows and Android as well. What language would you pick? It's difficult because there's no... All the existing languages have been shaped by the environments that they grew up in, sort of. Uh, so that people, someone will make a language with an idea of what purpose it's going to use and uh, what purpose it's going to be used for. And if it succeeds and if we've heard of it and know the name of it, it's probably because it did something useful in some realm and was shaped by that area. And so not many languages other than, say, AppleScript, were designed from the start as automation languages and succeeded in that realm. I don't know if Tickle was that. I remember Tickle was used for automation a lot, but I don't know if it was designed for that. Um, but yeah, all the other languages out there are used for other purposes. And you're mostly looking for one that, that is a high level language that is friendly and has simple syntax and, you know, the, the old Perl motto, getting back to the Perl stuff, make uh, easy things easy, hard things possible. I don't know if that's a Perl thing, but it's something that was spoken about in the Perl community a lot. I would be tempted to say, oh, geez, I, I'm such a Perl head. I'd be tempted to say Perl 6, except Perl 6 is fiendishly complicated, but it does make easy things easy. And I think it's a way better language than JavaScript. But nobody knows Perl 6 because it hasn't been very successful and has much greater competition. So I would say either a language that doesn't exist or a fantasy alternate universe where Perl 6 became immensely popular, despite the fact that it is incredibly complicated because you can write baby Perl 6 and it will work fine and it's a better language than JavaScript by far. I think that's the, the strange dichotomy of this issue is that um, you want a powerful language, but you also, with automation by its definition, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to start playing with it that are not necessarily programmers. I mean, I used to do a ton of automation in Microsoft Word Basic. You know, I as as a lawyer, I wrote tons of automated forms and things with with the Basic, which you know I thought we would stop using that in the eighties. Um, but it just, uh, I think when you're when you're coming up with an automation language, you also have to make it accessible enough for people that that folks that don't work in it every day can can make something happen with it. Yeah, and I think really any any high level language that where you're just you don't have to concern yourself with the, the details of the computer, and it's mostly like variables, conditionals, loops, and function calls with a reasonable syntax. That's fine. Like people who just want to automate something, they'll learn the the minimum they need to know to call functions, maybe to write functions, and to do loops and conditionals. And almost every every high level language passes that bar. But if you're looking for a really good language, you want it to be 
not particularly awkward to write functions with no strange limitations. You also don't want weird corner cases. Like JavaScript is full of them. The fact that it uses floating point numbers behind the scenes, you, something you usually don't have to think about, but it comes back to bite you as soon as you start dealing with very large numbers and realize you're losing precision and you wonder why weird stuff is happening in your program. Um, the, sort of the the day-to-day hygiene of how easy is it to manipulate strings and how many gotchas are there. Like JavaScript is full of just sharp edges and weird things due to history and then the advanced versions of javascript are very complicated you know like destructuring uh the destructuring syntax try explaining that to a beginner it's it's not you know it's it's a language that gets hard really fast and has lots of sharp edges but you can basically assign to variables and do loops and uh, you know the the conditionals and the comparisons are a little bit tricky because of their weird type system Uh, and call functions and we you know we muddle through you know, I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about your opinion on, I guess, what I would call Lego automation, the automator or Siri shortcuts model where you stack blocks and uh, and make basic automations that way. Are you a fan of that? Uh, I mean, personally, I would much prefer just to be able to write a program, but it's that's not everyone's not a programmer, so you can't make that the basis of your automation or it'll just be too closed off. Um, and practically speaking, sometimes when I want to automate something, I will briefly think, oh, this is something I should be able to do in Automator or in AppleScript. Um, but very quickly, I will run up against a situation where I can't find a block that does what I want or I see how I have to combine these five blocks to do something and it seems like a Rube Goldberg machine and I get frustrated. <laughs> but for other people... If they don't have any other outlet, the blocks are all there are, and it's it's reasonable. I just I just question it as the like there needs to be more than that, right? If you think about how it is slash was on the Mac, Automator exists, but also AppleScript exists, yeah. and you can you know combine the two. If you just had Automator and said this that's it, that's the automation solution for the Mac, you'd be like well, that's great and all, but sometimes I just want to do something a little bit different. Oh well, then just you know combine these Automator blocks in, in increasingly Byzantine ways, and you could it's like. I would like to be able to just write some Apple script and maybe I can make that into an auto write block or use automator to call out to that Apple script. Or maybe I'll just write the whole thing in Apple script because I've moved beyond automated. It always has to be something more. Otherwise you're using Legos is, is a kind of a leading example, but imagine if you, if the analogy was it's like Lego blocks, only you, you only have five blocks to choose from and they're really weirdly shaped. It's hard to make like an X-wing fighter. If you just have, a really wide flat piece, a very skinny long piece and a big huge block and like, okay, make an X-Wing. I'm like, these are my only pieces. Yeah, but you can do it. Just, you know, keep repeating the pieces and it just, it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, that's a good example. And honestly, there are things in automator and to a lesser extent, series shortcuts where you, you can't make the thing no matter how Rube Goldberg you go. I mean, there are certain limits to what you can do with those. And, and when we talk to our listeners, we hear about that. And, and that's the folks that suddenly get interested in learning to program JavaScript or AppleScript, depending on you know, what platforms they're on, and they want to go to that next level. But I, I do think that um, a failing of the Lego automation apps is, is the power level. They, there is a ceiling on them, and I'd, I would like to see that ceiling get higher. Yes. And there's the flip side of that, too, because it's not just like the person who's writing the automation. What are they able to do? If you are writing an application, you have to make your application automatable. And the ways you do that influence how it can be used. If the only way you can make your thing automatable is by including like hooks for shortcuts on iOS or whatever, 
that's more limited than the old AppleScript dictionary way where you could essentially de- define an, any number of functions and, and you know, nouns and verbs for your application that suit your application. And it was, you could design your own API. And because you're doing it with Apple events and AppleScript, the limit is only your imagination. What nouns are there in your application? What verbs can you do to them? Whereas shortcuts is much more limited in, in how much you can expose. And every time you think of something new, you have to basically make that it's it's not as it's not as modular as being able to just define uh i don't know what they're called in apple script but like the, the things that are in the apple script dictionary the various uh functions that you can call and uh, actions and, and yeah. yeah i think they're and, library interests or something like that but, yeah whatever the whatever the equivalent of nouns and verbs are that you can just keep defining those and you don't have to make any decisions ahead of time about how they're going to be combined it's it's very flexible from the caller's perspective shortcuts yeah. is far far less flexible so you're out th- someone's out there trying to write an automation Chances are good they want they might want to call upon the applications on their systems to do work for them, and the the vocabulary they can use to speak to those applications is necessarily limited by whatever technology the application creator had to use to expose uh, that functionality. We're seeing this a lot on iOS right now because developers are donating all of these fabulous shortcuts to Siri, and tons of them involve the clipboard because there is no way to pass input and output to these options, and so. What you're doing is you're telling Carrot to update the weather and then, oh, but can you set my my clipboard to the weather, please? That's an extra step so that then you can get it and you can manipulate it. Um, and I'm hoping that we're going to see an improvement to that this WWDC. Yeah, I just I just saw that the other day. I was looking at Dan Morin's uh, automation. He's doing some shortcuts for sleep tracking. And, you know, his solution was to call something to write the current timeout to a text file and then have something else read the text file and get the time from it. And it's like, oh, like you can get it done. But that's 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 why I keep saying Rube Goldberg. It's you it, you would never choose to do it that way. Yeah. Like in if you were writing an actual program or an Apple script, like it, very few Apple scripts, I imagine, take a value and write it to a file on disk and then invoke a, a, a function to read that file back from disk because it's all or, or even worse, use the system clipboard as a temporary holding place rather than memory. You know, for mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's bananas you know you, you, you do what you have to do like a lot of these things that's why i say almost anything is possible if uh you know if it's turing complete if you can figure out uh, some sort of abstraction of like let's just consider that we have one variable it's like towers of annoy yeah? like one one place to store things and it's the clipboard we can do basically anything we want with a series of saves from the clipboard and put into a variable and concatenate another thing and put it back in the clipboard and split it you can make a little mini language inside the clipboard to pack your data into the clipboard and unpack it on the other side and it's just it's madness. Like that's not the system is not helping you there. Well, if there's if there's one uh, bit of sunlight here, it's that even since they released uh, the most recent version of iOS, the Siri shortcuts team has done several updates. They've got one right now in beta where they're giving you more access to Apple Notes. It seems like this is something that's very actively developed. So I hope that they they have a big whiteboard with a lot of these ideas covered. I'm very much hoping so too, and I'm hoping that that whiteboard is magnetic, and that somebody could just sort of sneak in there and stick our little feature requests on it in the same font, <laughs> so that you know that's just like, oh yeah, yeah, that thi- that thing. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Did we talk about that? We must have talked about it. I'll just implement it. I'm very much hoping that happens for us. Well, those radars. <laughs> but I do think John has a point. I don't know if we're ever going to get to Apple Script level of customizability and scripting on iOS. 
Yeah. Well, it was a simpler time with Apple events where the, you know, this, the, the idea that uh, the computer was a one big trusted environment, kind of like the Unix systems of old before the Internet spread everywhere. That just like, well, once you're on your Mac, you can send Apple events to any application on your Mac because you are on your Mac and you and all the applications on it are all in one big happy family. And what are, what are your security concerns? And of course, you know, in the age of Internet, we understand that you know, click on something in a web browser that causes something to run that runs an Apple event that asks the keychain to dump out all your passwords and send it to, you know, like it's so much more fraught security environment. So these things aren't different for no reason. They're different for a good reason, but we have lost a lot. This episode of The Automators is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends at Smile. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Get 20% off your first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it here on The Automators. Copy and paste isn't a good way to keep track of the things you type again and again. Text Expander makes you more productive by taking care of all those words and phrases for you. With Text Expander, you can store your frequently used phrases into snippets, and they'll expand with a short abbreviation as you type. Text Expander works in all your apps so you can use it everywhere. It works with Apple's Pages, Microsoft Word and Excel, Adobe Illustrator and InDesign. No matter where you can type words, Text Expander can do the job. And the shiny new Text Expander 6.5 is out now. It has a new visual editor for snippets, which gives you visual access to fill-ins, dates, date math, nested snippets, and more. With this new version, it's even easier to automate, just like we talk about on this show all the time. I use automated text expander snippets all the time. I write about them in Max Sparky. I just did one a few weeks ago that explained how to automatically address an email to a recipient. So if I make an email to Rose, it says, hi, Rose, comma, at the beginning with just a short snippet. With text expander, automation is even easier with JavaScript syntax highlighting. And Windows users get offline editing support plus improved expansion. And don't forget to search their blog for industry tips and snippet tricks. To me, Text Expander is the first step of automation. Automating text entry is something everybody can do, no matter what your level of experience is, and it can immediately start saving you time. And now with the brand new release, now is a great time to try Text Expander. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast right now for 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. Let them know you heard about it here on the Automators and you'll get 20% off your first year. Our thanks to Text Expander for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Yeah, so John, um, I know that you said to us before the show that you don't do a huge amount of automation. What kind of automations do you do? Are there things embedded in your life that maybe you don't even think about anymore because they just happen? I've been trying to to think about that. And like when, when I think of automation, I think of the kind of things you talk about on the show and the kind of things that I see my friends doing. We're just excited to be able to get their computing devices to do something that they weren't designed to do or didn't do out of the box or don't even do with an app. Like you have a bunch of these pieces. Can you put them together to do something interesting? Uh, And I tend not to do that, but I think it doesn't mean I don't have any automation. Like I'm trying to think of pulling back from my Mac and my phone and my iPad or whatever and think about what I do at work. A lot of the time I spend, yes, I'm using a Mac at work, but a lot of the time at work, I feel like I'm, I'm using my Mac, but I'm using it to open up these tiny little holes into a different world, which is the Unix world. So I've got a lot of terminal windows open, and there are a bunch of tasks having to do with software development that happen all the time as part of our you know, software development lifecycle process, as they call it at work or whatever. 
kind of standards and procedures and things you do repeatedly as part of your code test debug you know submit review cycle uh and there are automations all over that like like there are lots of if i had to do all the steps manually involving like uh committing submitting testing code Mm -hmm. it would be extremely tedious so I, I, you know, it's several layers. The first layer is like all my little command line aliases in, in my shell where I just type a couple of obscure letters. And those aliases usually lead to scripts that are that I've written. And those scripts call a bunch of other commands that are provided by the company to do all the things that I have to do with various error handling and so on and so forth. So that every time I need to do a thing like submit some code, I just run one command and this automation kicks off and it does like seven different steps, including sending signals out to like our uh, you know, issue tracker system and sending notification emails to people about things that happen and telling me if there was an error and running all of the static analysis stuff that we have to do and running the the unit tests unless they've already just run and nothing has changed since then because it's slow to run them and like all that stuff. Uh, I don't really think of that as automation. I just think of that as part of my job, but it is in fact automation. And the reason I, I, I think it's valid to call it that is if you look at all the other developers like at our, you know, company there, there are like official tools made by teams in the company to help you automate these steps. But depending on how long you've been at the company, you may have your own set of tools that you use instead or in addition to those. Like when I started, a lot of this automation wasn't there. And so if you went to someone's desk, you'd see, oh, this is how I do stuff. Or I have this script or I have this alias and I combine these scripts and I use this script from Tim and this script from Sue and I combine them into this form. And like, because we're a bunch of programmers, right? So we all yeah. made our own <laughs> bespoke sure. automations. And then as the company grew bigger, they're like, we should have an official automation for this. And they made one. But the old people, at least me anyway, said, well, I'll just keep using my automation because I like it a little bit better than your automation. I know exactly how it works. And when I want to change it, I can just change it myself. So that's probably in my daily life, the main my main interaction with what you would consider automation. It's just not particularly sexy because it's all command line stuff happening in a terminal window. I don't think we've been talking about terminal automation before. So I'm actually kind of interested. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole thing about being a programmer is that you have the power. You can take control and it doesn't matter if somebody provides a, a tool that can do something for you, right? You, you can, you can make your own and you can make it better and you can change it whenever you want. So if it turns out that actually you need to start see, seeing somebody else on every commit message or something, you can just change your scripts to do that, I presume. Yeah. And then the nice thing about my work as a web, web developer is, pretty much all the software we ever work with for the most part is open source so Mm -hmm. say there is you know some part of an automation that like kicks off a thing that like changes the state of a jira ticket or something and you wanted to do something slightly different Uh, but you didn't write the library that talks to jira but because it's open source and you're a programmer you can just take that entire library and copy it from wherever it is or like fork it if, and if it's installed locally and then just modify the library. Like, first of all, you can see what it does because you have the source code to this third party library. It's just something we take for granted as a web developer. And I always feel bad about iOS and Mac developers that even if I didn't write the software, like I'm writing code that calls libraries that calls libraries at any point, if something does something that I don't want, I can step into it with a debugger, see what it's actually doing. And if I want, because it's open source, I can just fork that code and change it. Right, And I can even submit those changes upstream if I'm feeling particularly energetic to the people who maintain that software, or I can just have a locally modified copy. Like There's no part of the system that I care about that I can't modify in that way. And that is definitely not true for iOS and Mac. Not only can they, don't, do they not have source code to the frameworks, but they can't even 
modify the, you know, call private functions that they're not supposed to call, even though they know they're there because they can run class stop or whatever. So that's a uh, nice benefit of being a web developer instead of a developer for an Apple platform. Yes, agreed. I also do web development and I <clears throat> may or may not have uh, modified several very popular libraries available for, in PHP to do exactly what I want to do mm-hmm. because that's what you can do and that's what is excellent about being a programmer. You can take this up a level um, if you need to. You know, I'd never really given a lot of thought to terminal-based automation. I mean, to me, the terminal is always something you'd go monkey around in um, when you want. Yeah, I, I have like a list of terminal commands. That's my terminal knowledge. And I read... Um, I think a book on it several years ago. So I've got like a collection of terminal commands I use, but I never really operate out of the terminal. Um, how how would somebody get started with that if they wanted to try and, and incorporate the terminal into doing more for them than get basic information out of the system? It's it's not even exclusively like terminal automation. Like uh, the, the 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 biggest example I have of, of automation that I've done is actually was actually on my Mac. Right, so I had a task that I needed to accomplish on my Mac, uh, and it was it was when I was uh, writing uh, Mac OS X reviews for Ars Technica, sure. uh, and they just kept getting you know bigger and more complicated. Right, they were it's tons and tons of text, huge amount of images, sometimes movies, uh, and I would I would have to write it, and it would have to eventually be put into their CMS in some weird format. And also, I was selling eBooks, and so I had to generate eBooks for it—one for the Kindle store, and one open uh, one EPUB for download from ours, and then an EPUB made for the iBook store. Uh, and that's a lot of stuff that has to happen. And I'm using, you know, BB Edit to write my thing, and I'm BB Edit can do a web preview, or I'm looking at it in Safari, um, and I'm using Photoshop to make the images, and I'm taking screenshots, and you know, whatever, all the stuff that I'm doing—it's it's, it's work on a Mac, you know, sort of multimedia work as they used to say right on a mac but when it came time to automate this to say i've made a change to the book i want to or to the article i want to see how it looks i want to see how it looks on the web i want to see how it's going to is it make sure it's correct for the cms how is it going to look in context on ars technica what is the kindle book going to look like and what is the ibook going to look like right yeah that's a lot of steps and you because you're on the mac you'd say like i could apple script this right or i can use automated to try to put this stuff together but inevitably you run up against something weird like oh well to make a Kindle book, there's no thing with an Apple scriptable dictionary that does that. Uh, can, you know, Amazon provides tools for making Kindle books, and they they may provide like a GUI application for doing it, but it probably doesn't have an Apple script dictionary. But what they'll also provide is a command line tool uh, that will make a Kindle book, right? And it's like, aha, a command line tool. That that might lead me towards thinking, uh, you know, I can, I can run a command line tool from Apple script or whatever those, you know, execute shell command or whatever the, the thing, but it's just... It might lead you to thinking that I can script this without using "quote unquote" Mac scripting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have a bunch of text files and a bunch of images and a command line tool that generates something, and the EPUB was similar, like you can generate an EPUB just manually, like it's just files and directories, right? If you know if you know the EPUB format, which I did from working in the ebook world a little while before, uh, if you find yourself faced with that task where you're like, "What I'm doing doesn't really have anything to do with the Mac." You can write any kind of program that can read and write files and directories and run commands. And if you're looking for a language well-suited to manipulating files, files and the contents of them, and directories and running commands and managing the output of, of them, the input of them, there are lots of languages like that. People call them glue languages or scripting languages 
Perl is one, which is the one I use because I know it best, but you can do it from JavaScript or Node.js these days if you don't mind going slightly into callback hell or async stuff, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, you could probably do it from AppleScript if you were well-versed in that language, but the Unix world, even just like shell scripting, like born shell script, the Unix world has a lot of languages that are like that, um, where you take a bunch of other things, other commands, and glue them together. So if, say you're doing text file manipulation, but you don't know a programming language. Unix itself has tons of tools like grep and awk and sed and, you know, sort and all, all sorts of other, you know, individual commands that you can pipe together to manipulate files, even if you don't know programming. And if you want to run a series of those commands on some files as input and produce some output and run it again, you could do that in a shell script. And that's how you're starting to build up to, you know, command line automation. It's really just getting out of the Mac realm and going into the Unix realm where people have been writing little miniature programs to glue together a bunch of other commands to do something useful for decades and decades. And so when, when faced with this task, of course, because I'm used to programming stuff like that and I'm well-versed in Perl, which is extremely well-suited to this type of task, I wrote you know a series of fairly terrible uh, Perl scripts that will do all these steps for me. And Perl scripts can also send Apple events because you can shell out to OSA script, the command line that sends Apple events, right? So I'd, I'd, yeah. I could I could have it spawn the web browser and open the page. I could have it open the Kindle app with the, you know, like minimal scriptability. I was, you know, it went the other direction. I'm writing a Perl program that mostly runs command line programs, but occasionally runs OSA script to send Apple events. Um, and that, that's how I approached it. You could have done it a different way, but given my skill set, that's that's the way I decided to do it. But that flexibility on the Mac is really nice because another way you could do that is you could write it from AppleScript or you could use AppleScript to trigger JavaScript. I mean, it's just like there's so many different ways to skin that cat on the Mac. And uh, that's something I, I didn't really appreciate until I was listening to you talk about it because I never really thought about Perl as like a basis for a scripting language. But it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. I mean, you could have wrote it, written it in Node. You could have written it in Swift. Swift fancies itself a you know equally valid scripting language. You can write you know that was one of when I wrote about Swift, I was, I was most excited about the idea that you could put like a little line at the top of the file, just like the you know pound bang uh, line for the shell or Perl. You can put one for Swift and just write your Swift and you just run it. Like there's no separate compile step. You just you could just run a file the same way you can run a shell script or a Perl script or a Python script or a Ruby script. You can write a Swift script. Uh, I don't think it's quite as easy to do basic manipulation in Swift as it is in Perl, but it's getting there. And a lot of it is just because I'm not as familiar with language yet, but you could write it in objective C, you could write it in C like which language is best suited for this. I don't think you'd want to write this kind of automation in C because just running an external program and capturing the output correctly in C will probably make your eyes bleed and other languages make that so much easier. Um, but on the Mac, unlike iOS, all options are open to you. You can write code in any language you want and make an executable and it can do what you want it to do. I'm just thinking you could also perhaps even do this with Keyboard Maestro because Keyboard Maestro has various blocks where you can execute command line scripts and you can execute Apple script and you can do all sorts of things. Um, and in some ways, for some people, that might be better because I know uh, as soon as I start getting into uh, doing multiple things that talk to a lot of servers, I start turning things into functions. Um, but in some scripts, like th there's not a lot of point in turning it into a function because a function, the idea is it's code that you're going to call more than once. Um, so to avoid copy-pasting your code, you, you make it into a function. Um, and just doing that for readability, sometimes I'm much too lazy. But if I wrote it in something like Keyboard Maestro, then I would just have that, that visibility because I've got a block here. And I've got a block there and I can see, okay, well, this block does this. Well, this is 
wording in the wrong order. So I'm just going to move this block up here. Um, and that might be quite useful for some of our listeners as well. Because don't forget, you can execute Apple Script and uh, Shell Scripts uh, directly from Keyboard Maestro. Yeah, you can always pick like, you know, who's in charge or what is the entry point? Because you can call from one realm into another. You can make a bunch of scripts in the languages of your choice. And but you could have uh, Automator or Keyboard Maestro or AppleScript be the driver where it starts and it kicks off your thing and then it bounces back to that thing. And it goes like it, it just depends on what's your what you're most comfortable with. Like there's no you're not forced to choose one or the other, uh, depending on like, oh, I'm going to do lots of GUI manipulation. And Keyboard Maestro would be great for that because I can have it like open dialogues and click on buttons or whatever. So I have to start it in a Keyboard Maestro. You don't. You mm. can start it in a shell script and kick off Keyboard Maestro or vice versa or, you know, all three or four combined. I mean. You don't want to make something where your your code is spread over seven different applications in 12 different languages, but you could if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, you can even use Hazel to watch some, a folder, and whenever something happens to a file in the folder, then it can just go, well, hey, let's get on with this. Uh, oh, that reminds me of my favorite my favorite automation at work. Um, I don't know how, how much experience you all have with uh, the, the world of Dilbert-esque corporate uh, America, but, you know, there's there are things in... Uh, jobs in a big company that you just have to deal with and it, you can yell and scream about them and complain, but sometimes it's better to take matters into your own hands. So to give one example, uh, our company has decided that uh, it is important enough for them to enforce this across all the Macs in the company that when you open a new window in Safari or a new tab, it loads the company homepage. So in Safari's preferences is the thing that says, what happened? What, you know, what URL should I go to when you open a new window or tab? And it comes default to like, I don't know, the apple.com start page or something. But you can just delete it or pick empty page or whatever. But in corporate America, not everything on your computer is yours. And they use a system that enforces certain constraints, some of them for security, like, oh, your, your screen has to lock after a certain period of time and you can't change that preference. You know, and that's the key part that these are preferences, but they can remotely set them to what they want and make it so you can't change them. So if I go to preferences on my work computer in Safari, I can't change what happens in a new page or a new tab. It's yeah. stuck on the corporate homepage. I can't change it to something else because they like there's a managed preference file that they write in this obscure directory you're in. And that drives me insane because if you're a web developer, you open new windows and tabs all the time and the corporate homepage takes a year and a day to load mm-hmm. and it just... It's it's bad, right? Yep. Uh, so you mentioned Hazel watching directories. Well, Hazel is for like watching directories in your, you know, in your home directory or dealing with your files. But the actual file that's getting written uh, by the corporate, you know, overlord uh, system is buried in some system directory. And it's like owned by root or whatever. And luckily, I do have still have root on my local Mac. Um, and every time they write that file there, like if, if you remove that file, they'll just put it back. Like there's an automation that runs and it checks to see that everything, all the settings are the way they're supposed to be. Uh, and because it's a preference file, there's the CF prefs daemon that reads that stuff and it caches it. So even if you were to delete that file, this pre- the CF prefs uh, daemon still has the cache. So Safari, when you launch it, just pulls the pref using the pref API and gets it from the CF pref daemon. So my solution to this was do a Hazel-like thing, which is to use the latest and greatest FS events API where you can efficiently watch for changes to a directory on Mac OS. Yeah. Like it's, you don't have to pull, it'll just like, you'll just start watching that Active. directory. Yeah. yeah. And when anything happens in that directory, your script will be notified. So I wrote a Perl script with the FS events module that watches that directory. And when you initially launch it, what it does is delete that offending file, uh, send a signal to the CF prefs daemon to tell it to, to restart itself. 
And then as soon as any file appears and this, this file that I'm watching for appears in that directory, I wait a couple of seconds, remove the file, wait a couple more seconds and, and uh, reboot the CF pref statement. So constantly in the background of my computer at work, I'm fighting. It's fighting an eternal battle against corporate policy of trying to set my homepage. So how much of your I'm CPU sorry. does this actually that. use? That's the, be- that's the beauty of FS events. It's not polling. It's not saying, is the file there? Is the file there? Is the file there? It is an efficient kernel level API where it, most of the time my script is doing nothing. It's completely idle. It's just sitting there waiting for the, the system to say, hey, a new file appeared in this directory which only happens like the thing runs every five minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. We don't have a control. I don't have control over when the corporate overlord <laughs> thing runs on my computer. But when it does, my script wakes up for a second, has a little burst of activity, and then goes back to sleep. Oh, that's brilliant. As I understand it, that's the reason why Hazel, you can make all these complex Hazel rules, and it takes a tiny, tiny fraction of your processing because it's it's using the same underlying daemon. Um, uh, it's not it's not a daemon. It's a kernel-level facility, like because the, any I.O. <laughs> that goes through the kernel uh, the kernel knows when anything is writing to a file. There are actually a couple different APIs. There's FS events, there's KQ. There's, uh, I think there's maybe one other one. Um, so you don't have to do anything Be- because the kernel knows when it does file IO, when it does any file IO, it says, by the way, was anybody in the system interested in changes to this file? Because if they were, I'll notify them now. It's incredibly efficient. And the rest of the time, your program or thing that's listening, like Hazel, just sits there doing nothing. Yeah, that's great. That is <laughs> so, brilliant. Uh, so you don't you don't see the homepage, I, I would guess, very often. I do not. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure that inside you're, you're secretly deeply sad about this, um, but day-to-day it is making your life easier because you're saving probably, what, 10 seconds every time you open the tab? So, uh, yeah, it's the worst because it like bounces you through SSO, the single sign-on stuff. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a tremendous yeah. time set. Yeah. Now, didn't you get like a little smile on your face when you were putting that together? thinking about it i was mostly still just angry that they wouldn't change this policy because it's like <laughs> there's no security reason for this and they're like we want people to see the homepage, so just tell everyone to look at the homepage every once in a while or send out a digest email that says by the way here's this week's important announcements like it's it's the worst and like every developer rolls another automation every developer rolls their own little secret script to do this <laughs> on, on google on google they couldn't do it but on google what they could do is force the little house the little home icon in the toolbar like right. if you in regular Google, you can say, "Please don't put that little house in my toolbar. I don't want it there." But in my Google at work, that preference is disabled, and I can't remove it through the same mechanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah, that sort of thing is frustrating. And uh, I, I should uh, caution our listeners: if there is a corporate policy for things, and you want to get around it, like perhaps find out why. If you're you're not sure, so something like setting a homepage, as John said, not for security reasons, but. For example, requiring your computer to lock after a couple of minutes of inactivity, mm-hmm. that is for security. And I would highly recommend that you do not disable that because that will get you into trouble with the IT team, she says, as somebody who works on the IT team. so <laughs> yeah, yeah, technically, like what I just described would probably get me in trouble too, but it's like I feel like it's defensible. Like yeah. you, I'm telling you what I'm doing, and I understand the trade-offs here. And I've, we've, everyone, believe me, all the developers asked, why does it have to be the homepage? So we got the answer, and the answer did not have anything to do with security. So now we all feel just fine defeating that particular mechanism i'm thinking you know could you have done that without pearl and i guess you could have had hazel watching for the file if you have root access yeah hazel would have to be running as root though which is kind of weird i'm not sure you want i want to run a big unknown program as root where i wrote every line of the thing that i'm writing running as root and but you could do it do it anything you could probably do it in in anything that has access to either kq or uh i notify in linux or fs events uh and you can get that's just a c api you can get it from any c level language you can do it from objective c 
could probably do it from a Swift. Uh, you can do it from any high-level language that has a library for it. I think Node has a library for FS events. I'm pretty sure it does. Um, Ruby has a library for it. Python, like any of these high-level languages that can tap into lower-level uh, C APIs will work. But you'd still need to run a script to do the reset anyway. So, it, yeah, it probably doesn't really make sense. Well, you can do the main steps you have to do is delete a file, which like any language can do, assuming it has permissions. Then you have to send a signal to a process and you have to know what you have to be able to find the CF prefs process and you have to send a signal to it. So Mm -hmm. most languages can do that. I would find it delightful to be sticking it to the man with something like that. This episode of Automators is brought to you by Creative Next. Creative Next is a new podcast focusing on future proofing creatives from AI automation. They believe the future of automation is about people like you and me, because work automation isn't all about industrial robots. Automation, driven by artificial intelligence, is already doing remarkable things, like impacting research, writing, marketing, art, design, engineering, and entrepreneurship. And this is the kind of thing that is likely to accelerate in years to come. So what does Creative Next cover? The first season is all about learning learning about how AI and automation work, understanding how machines learn with early automation successes, and they'll look at how people may learn in the future. Creative Next is available from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen to your podcasts. Plus, they have a companion article series on Medium that's in partnership with Towards Data Science. Check it out at creativenext.org automators. That's creativenext.org slash automators. Our thanks to Creative Next for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. John, are you using Siri shortcuts for anything? You know, I don't think I'm personally using them for anything, but I have a tremendous amount of Siri shortcuts. Like if you launch the app, it's just there's a whole screen full of these little tiles. And it's mostly because, you know, I'll talk about things on an ATP XNL tech podcast where we you know, complain about stuff. And they're like, oh, well, I can make a serious shortcut that'll help you with that. Lots of listeners send us shortcuts. Or I see cool shortcuts online. Uh, you know, Federico Vitici has some really awesome ones that he writes these big articles about. Every time I see a shortcut that seems even vaguely interesting, I download it and look at it just because I'm curious. Like, how did they do this thing that seems almost impossible? Or what what's the state of the art in shortcuts? Or, you know, and occasionally I'll find some utility, like we were fighting over uh Apple's contacts with some vaguely written rules that said if the image is too big, it won't sync them or something. And so a bunch of people wrote shortcuts that will find all the images that are over that size. And then someone wrote a shortcut that will find the images and tell you which contacts they belong to. And someone improved that and said, we'll find the images that are too big. We'll resize them so they're small enough and we'll dump them all in an iCloud folder. Like, no, I don't think anyone has gone through to the point of uh, finding the images that are too big, resizing them, and then reapplying them to their correct contacts. And honestly, I probably wouldn't run that uh, that shortcut yeah. either because I would think, assume it would hose all my contacts because programming is hard. Uh, but I have screens full of those. I have things for like sharing shortcuts to try to like email myself, uh, you know, information about tweets. I used to have a, uh, a, a dedicated iOS application. It was called mail to self. I think the yeah. only thing it did was like uh, provide a sharing sheet that would pull the metadata from whatever thing it's sharing and compose an email to yourself. And it would do it in a single tap. Uh, that's the kind of thing that annoys me about shortcuts is no matter how short you make the shortcuts, it's usually two taps, right? You got to activate the shortcut and then run it. I think you can maybe get it to one. Can you make one that like provides its own share extension? Um, I think you can take a lot of steps out as a share extension. Like mm-hmm. for instance, I have, um, 
a bunch that I do to save because I save files all the time that have specific names and and date strings and things attached to them, which is just a pain in the neck to create on iOS. But if you make a custom series shortcut for each one, you have one tap to activate the shortcut. Well, actually, it's two taps. You're right because you first you got to hit the extension button, then you got to select the shortcut, and then you probably have to press an OK button. Well, at the very least, you have to share shortcuts, find the right shortcut, which if you're me, though, as of yesterday, uh, shortcuts helpfully deleted 493 of my shortcuts. Um, so I, I have sh- I have fewer shortcuts right now. Um, uh, then you, you select the right shortcut, which may involve some scrolling, tapping, potentially searching. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it runs. But that's at least three taps, including the share sheet tap. Yeah, but but I would I would characterize my iOS automation as like technical curiosity with with a smattering of periodic utility. But there's nothing I do on the on a daily basis on my iOS devices that is automated in any interesting way. Yeah, that, and that that was kind of my question was the periodic utility. Are there any that you actually find that you use under fire that that come in handy, or is it just you just want to see how people are doing things? The various like, um, you know, because when I run across things on, on the web or on Twitter, which is the main two places I run across things that I want to like save for probably for you know a future uh, podcast episode or something. I do want to sort of queue them up somewhere, whether it's sending them to a note or emailing them to myself or putting them putting it into a Google Doc or whatever. And I've tried a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, automations or share extensions and stuff to do that. None of them are particularly satisfactory. Like I've never been able to get them to work exactly the way I want, mostly because of the limitations and like the, the limitations of the system and also my lack of knowledge about exactly like when I hit the share sheet from this thing, like how how is the data being presented to whatever is going to handle it? What, what shape does the data take? What kind of metadata does it have? Can I get more metadata? Like uh, it's all sorts of ones that are like dedicated to Twitter that instead of instead of using like the application's share thing, like my Twitter client, it will just get enough information uh, that it can from the, the iOS app, and then it will go to Twitter's web API and extract metadata and then use that to form the information that you're going to put into a note or make a little HTML blob out of or mail yourself. And at that level of automation, I just start to get frustrated by how difficult things are. And I just go back to the tried and true old method because the default sort of mail action share thing does almost entirely what I want. It's just tedious to have to go mail, type in the first two letters of my email address, select the autocomplete, hit send. But it's not that bad. Um, and that's that's the, the part of the trade-off I always find myself fighting with. Like, I don't know if you find this as well, Rose, but like because your your work <laughs> is programming, when I'm not at work, I don't... I mean, it's not that I don't want to program, but like it starts to get me into the work headspace yeah. And I start kind of feeling like, uh, I don't, you know, I know I could do this, but I see I see the road ahead of me of what it would be like to really do this. And I, I just I feel like backing off and I'm like, eh, I don't I spent eight hours programming. Like, honestly, I don't want to do anymore. And I think part of that is what stops me from like, I, you know, I think about podcasting, I do podcasting every week of my life. And there are a series of steps I take before the podcast and after the podcast, I can automate those. But I don't. I just don't because I just I, I see ahead of me how careful I would have to be with that automation and all the error handling I would have to do and how I'd recover from a partial success. And, how you know, I don't want to lose a recording and what, you know, like I I see what that programming effort would be like. And I probably would make it up over 
over time, like the the day I spend doing that would be made up for by the first year of its use. But I don't. I just don't do it because it just it doesn't seem attractive to me. That that's probably keeping me from mostly automation. And the other flip side of it is that like I convince myself, oh, the ritual of preparing for a podcast and then finishing a podcast and getting everything together. It's kind of soothing to just do the three manual steps instead of writing a program to automate them. But that's that's a personal choice, I think, more than a uh, an endorsement. Yeah, I listened to you once on ATP talking about like your window management, and it was kind of the same thing. Where I was thinking, man, this guy should really think about some automation because you. I know you've got a very particular way you like your windows set, but I suspect that's not of interest to you either. I wouldn't trust any program. Like I launched Skype today, right? And every time I launch Skype, um, it decides the little black window that shows like the red hang up button and the uh, the mute button and everything. You know, the little black floating window that you may yeah. have in your screen right now. Yeah. Uh, it. I don't know where it puts it, but it doesn't put it where I want it to be. And every time I launch Skype, I move it back to where I want it to be. It just doesn't remember that, right? So could I get an Apple script that would launch Skype, find that window and move to the position I want? Probably, but just the thought of going through the exercise to try to see if Skype has enough of a, a reasonable scripting dictionary. Can I always find that window? Is the window named or numbered or does it change in different versions of Skype? And then when I update Skype, having it break and having to redo it, I, I just drag the window to where it's supposed to be. And I drag it to the same spot every time. I mean, there is something to be said about doing these things manually, because as you said, it's kind of a little routine, you know, getting set up for the podcast, and, you know, like after the podcast, and it's it's mental cues to your brain, which is getting at focus territory here and stealing from Mike um, on, <laughs> on your other podcast, David. Um, but, you know, there is something to be said for that. I do find that I don't sit down and do, oh, yeah, I'm going to write an, an Apple script for this. Like that's that's rarely something that I'm going to do just because, as you said, John, we we spend all day sitting there programming. Um, that said, I find shortcuts. It's just like putting a puzzle together. So some people <laughs> love jigsaw puzzles. Uh, I'm okay with jigsaw puzzles. I love shortcuts. I love sticking the blocks together and seeing if I get the thing that I want. I found some very weird, crazy stuff the other day and I was there going, oh, you know, like I could just do this. I've set up, we have to track our time at work the really recent, uh, fairly recent addition. And um, uh, what I'm doing is I'm doing all of that in shortcuts because there's a Windows application which creates an XML file. So I looked at the XML file. Um, I broke it down and I'm creating that as a JSON. And then at the end of the month, I'm just going to convert that to XML, throw it into this weird program on my Windows virtual machine at work and send my boss the report in the format that he's expecting. Um, but I'm doing all of that with shortcuts and JSON, and that was fun to put together. Um, it was probably not the most efficient way to put it together, but as, for example, when I'm on my way to a meeting, I need to switch timers to the meeting timer. Uh, I'm not going to have my Mac or a Windows machine available to do that. So I picked the most fun one, and it turned out to be the best one. That's a part of the appeal of shortcuts, because, because the iOS devices are so locked down. If you wanted to make a cool little app that you could just tap when you begin a, a thing and tap when you end, there's a million time tracking apps out there. But say you had some specific requirements like, oh, it has to record time in this weird format that your work requires. Yeah, You're not going to make, a, unless you are actually an iOS developer by trade, and maybe not even then, you're not going to say, okay, let me just, let me make a full-fledged iOS application in Swift or Objective-C, right, to do this thing and put up a UI and do all this stuff. Uh, but if you wanted to run your own code on your phone, that was, used to be your only option, right? Until workflows and, and the other automations come out. So now, if you shortcuts is, is a way for you to do that. Like I want a cool little thing on my phone that does a thing, and I don't want to write a full fledged app, and I don't want to, you know, 
deal with Xcode, building it and putting it onto my, onto my phone every time I update something. And I certainly don't want to submit it to the App Store, which is a whole uh-huh. other can of worms. Shortcuts is a way for you to make something that does a simple task. I mean, the shortcuts shows how little I know about shortcuts. Can shortcuts throw up any kind of UI beyond the stupid dialogues that everybody makes? Like the little white window where you have to pick a thing and enter some text, you know, all that. You can't like do your own UI yet, right? No, you can't do your own UI. If you wanted to do that, then you're probably be looking at using a scriptable um, or Pythonista, um, where mm, yeah. they can they can both present like UIs. Uh, scriptable is using like well, of course, it's Swift on the back end, but they're using like the built-in like Siri um, or UI table. Sorry, that's not Siri. Uh, you can tell it's three o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> And uh, so they're using, you know, it, so it looks like a, a real iOS UI instead of a shortcut UI. I'm just using um, dictionaries for everything and lists, cheese from list, um, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not the prettiest. And uh, I'm actually in the process of adding a filter so that I can just show like the five most frequently used time tracking options for me there and, uh, and another button because uh, having to scroll through what is a getting to be an extremely long list of various different ways that I could track my time um, is getting to be quite annoying very quickly. So. And another piece of this is there are a lot of apps that are starting to think about automation too. So you can get around some of this stuff with what I would call app-based automation, mm-hmm. um, which is nice for folks that, that frankly don't know all these languages. But, you know, I'd never really thought of it before. But if somebody made an app where in your free time you could assemble legal contracts, you know, I'm not sure I'd be all that into it. So <laughs> I can kind of hear where you're coming from. Because, see, for me, uh, the automation stuff is like what you do to stretch your brain when you're not doing a lot of the day job stuff. And it's fun because it's not something I'm doing all day. Part of it is the reliability angle, though, because like podcasts, what I want to do when I'm setting up for my podcast, I want to make sure everything is all set for my podcast. You're like, aha, automation can help you that. Don't you don't worry about doing all these steps. Automation will do all the steps. But as a programmer, we all know, yeah, you can write a program, to do all the steps. All you've done is shift. It. So now you're worrying about did my program work correctly? Is there a bug in my program? Is mm-hmm. there some weird timing glitch with Apple events? Is everything all set? And now you're second guessing everything. And I don't want to be in the mindset of checking that a program has worked correctly or debugging it. And a lot of automation of that level where it's coordinating multiple different GUI applications plus other stuff, plus inputs and outputs, like there are places for that to go wrong, especially in involving like launch times and connecting of audio inputs and outputs and all that other stuff. Like things can go wrong. And I, I'm more confident that I can do these three or four simple steps and and know that they're done if I'm using all these programs the way they're meant to be used and rather than hoping their Apple script dictionaries do what they say and using keyboard or maestro or something to do the fancier stuff that the programs weren't prepared for. Like, I don't want to be thinking about my program. It's like one more level of concern. So unless it was extremely fraught or too complicated for me to do manually because I would actually forget a step because there were 17 steps or something, then maybe I dedicate the time to automate it. But honestly, if I had a system like that before and after every podcast, I would consider a different system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, I'm even thinking like just like setting up your windows. Like I have a there's an app called Moom, M-O-O-M, that's a window manager. And you can take a snapshot of your windows exactly how you like them. You can save it. You press one button. And I do it all the time when I'm switching modes. It's not necessarily going to set my inputs for podcasting, but it can get, you know, kind of me get all the screen set up for me. You know, stuff like that. And it's, uh, but 
to me, it's, you know, the geeky fun part for me, I, it's not the job, you know, and so putting that stuff together doesn't take that long and, and you get a benefit from it. But, but maybe the answer there is an automation that doesn't go quite as deep as, as a programmer, you would think, oh, I don't want just to set up the windows. I want everything done. I want to push one button and just be ready to record. And as someone who's not a programmer, I'm, I'm okay getting just some of the intermediate steps automated. Yeah. I mean, what I do for my podcast setup, because uh, I, I use my laptop, I frequently use the bedroom's podcast studio. It is currently five to four in the morning. So surprise, I'm not recording in the bedroom today, which means everything's a bit different and that's enough to throw me off. But whenever I plug in my, my uh, XLR mixer, um, it, it triggers a keyboard maestro. And the keyboard yeah. maestro itself doesn't do a lot. It mostly just opens programs. So it opens, um, for example, the um, the audio uh, inputs and everything. And it's like, hey, make sure the audio input and output are set correctly. And make sure that this is actually being interpreted as a 44,100 whatever it is input instead of 48,000, which uh, they discovered today depends on the port I plug it into as to whether or not it knows um, which, uh, which um, frequency it should be recording at. Um, and so it walks me through the steps and then at the end it opens clip and Skype and everything to make sure that I'm ready for recording and it opens audio hijack. Um, so I ha I've somewhat automated it, but just like you, John, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant enough that I could theoretically make this 100% automatic, but I'm just hesitant enough that I don't want to do that. So Yeah, for the window positioning stuff, I've always been wary. I'm, I'm so picky about my window position. So I've always been wary of any program that's going to move my windows because I'm afraid it's just going to scramble my world. Uh, and in practice, good good Mac applications remember your window positions. Like that's, uh -huh. a, you know, Skype is not a good Mac application, as we all know. <laughs> so yeah. it, it is the only window that I have to move. Audio Hijack is always in the same place. When I, you know, when I launch it, it opens the podcasting, my podcasting setup. Like I don't have to touch it. My, you know, the thing that has my show notes is in my web browser. That's window that's always in the same spot. Uh, you know, everything is you know, all the, all of the folders where the recordings are going to go. They're, you know, in in the same spots on either like a drag thing dock or on my desktop or in the regular dock. Like things stay where I put them. So I arrange my workspace. I've been lucky enough not to have a situation where, what if you have to use Audio Hijack for two different podcasts with two very different setups? And now you have to pick which one or what if you have to want this application's a Windows range this way for this thing or this way for that thing. Then I might feel like maybe I have to get into either multiple desktops or something, some automated way to save and restore workspaces. But thus far, uh, and you know, low these many decades in computing, I have not needed that kind of automation. And so I pretty much just arrange things in a way that works for me and just trust that the next time I launch that same program or open that same document or do that same thing, that things will be where I left them. And that's a really important part of the way I work, which is why I get so angry when programs don't honor, don't honor my, uh, my inputs. They don't, they don't take my work seriously. I moved that window there for a reason. It wasn't frivolous. So John, as someone who uh, started a website called hypercritical, if Tim Cook called you and said, Hey John, we're, we want you to become the overlord of automation at Apple. You know, what were some what would be some steps you'd take to make it better for people? We kind of touched on this before, and I feel like what's what's lacking, and maybe Sal would agree, is a proper modern successor to Apple Script and Apple events. Um, because shortcuts are great and everything, but on the Mac, all we've got is Apple Script and, and Apple events. And on an iOS we have none of those things, but we have a bunch of other technologies. Both of those things need to be changed. On the Mac, I feel like Apple Events and Apple Script are 
old languages that are not suited to the modern world. So they need to be updated and revamped. And on iOS, we don't have any equivalent of AppleScript and AppleScript dictionaries for automation where, like we said before, you have a general purpose system of for people who are writing programs to define the nouns and verbs that their programs support in a flexible way that doesn't hem people in. And you can build on that and build building blocks and shortcuts on top of that and then, you know, work your way up the stack. But that type of general purpose programmery automation, both as a way for you to drive other programs and as a way for people who write other programs to allow themselves to be driven. And you see Omni doing that. I think there's a bunch of other applications, Mac applications out there that use like JS Talk or other JavaScript-based automations. Like everyone's rolling their own because they realize, well, we could use AppleScript, and if we're a good Mac application, we do, but it's kind of creaky and everything. And it would be nice if you could write your automations in JavaScript, which way more people know than AppleScript. So that's why people like Omni and who's the other? Is it, is it uh, maybe Rogamu? No, uh, Flying Meat, maybe Gus Mueller. Anyway, a bunch of good Mac applications have taken it upon themselves to make their own system for doing automation because Apple hasn't provided a modern system level one. And that's on the Mac where at least you have options. On iOS, there's nothing because Apple has to officially support it because it's the only way anything will work. I mean, you've got shortcuts, but there's no there's no next level to that. There's no and it, and it would be easier, like instead of doing, you know, every time Apple comes out with new one of these APIs, add these hooks so you can support share sheets so you can support shortcuts and Siri shortcuts. And that's all well and good. But if you could just say all iOS applications like Mac applications in the past should be automatable. So every time you're making something, like just like applications should be accessible, like the sort of accessibility stuff that's built into the frameworks, yeah. automation should also be built into the frameworks in a modern way, in a deep way. And yes, it would have to be in a secure way. So I'm not saying this is an easy problem, but that's that's what I think Apple needs on all of its platforms, a modern successor to AppleScript and Apple events. Across both platforms. Yeah. Right. They'd obviously, it'd be the same across both platforms, and it would have to take security into account, and it's a very difficult job to balance those things, but I think that's what's needed. Sold me, man. You're hired. Yeah. Yeah, just make it happen. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, John, where can folks find you? Where am I these days? Well, I do have a website that I update roughly once a year, if I'm lucky, at hypercritical.co, so you're not going to find much interesting there unless you dig, and then you can find the page that lists all of my current podcasts, of which there are many. Uh, I guess Accidental Tech Podcast at atp.fm, uh, Reconcilable Differences, that's at relay.fm, uh, Robot or Not, uh, that's the, on the Incomparable Network, uh, and I am an occasional guest on the Incomparable Podcast itself. And finally, I guess on Twitter, you can find me uh, at Syracuse on Twitter. It's just my last name. Well, thanks so much for uh, giving us some time today. I, I really was curious about your thoughts about automation, because I know after all those years writing so much about the Mac over at Ars Technica, I know you had a lot of thoughts on this. I'm really uh, happy that you were willing to share it with our audience, and I, I appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Yes, thank you very much for coming on. So we are the automators. You can find us over at relay.fm slash automators. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye.